Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. When I think of grace, I remember when I was seven years old. My parents accepted a call as missionaries to Beirut, Lebanon. And when we moved there, we experienced many situations of war. In this one particular situation, we were in the bomb shelter for 10 days. During that 10 days, every day a ceasefire was given where it would give people an opportunity to run home and grab more food and water and clothes and anything else that they needed. On one Friday afternoon, there was a ceasefire. And so my parents gathered, my sisters and I, and we were gonna run to our house about 100 yards away up a hill. We ran home and we were able to quickly gather as many things as we could. And as we stood by the back door, we prayed. And at that moment, we heard some bullets whiz overhead and we dropped to our stomachs and we tried to find the safest place in our house. And we realized that a sniper on an adjacent hill was holding us hostage in our own home. Well, at that moment, we just, we tried to bring comfort to ourselves. So we sang hymns and we held hands and we prayed and we tried to wait it out. But as dusk approached, we realized that we were gonna be in more danger if we stayed in our house and we didn't get back to the bomb shelter by the end of the ceasefire. So we went by the back door and prayed and hugged each other one last time and my parents instructed my sisters and I to just run, run without looking back as fast as we could. So being the youngest, I had to go first and I ran as fast as my little seven-year-old legs could carry me. I could hear the bullets whizzing over my head and I could hear my sisters not far behind. As I got to the bomb shelter, I watched as my sisters came and my parents came. And I realized, even at seven years old, I experienced the most ultimate gift of grace. The sniper could have done more than just scare us. He could have seriously hurt us or killed us. And I was reminded again, what a wonderful gift of grace we are given every day. Quite a number of years ago, there was an advice columnist in this country by the name of Ann Landers. Many of you will remember reading her advice columns. Because of the tenor and the climate of the times, one day Ann Landers' advice column dealt with the issue of nuclear war. She wrote a piece that talked about what the day after a nuclear attack would look like, what kind of devastation it would leave behind, what kind of death and destruction would follow in its wake. And then at the end of the column, she asked if her readers would clip the column out of the paper and send it to the President of the United States. Well, some readers took her up on it, enough so that a couple of weeks later she received a letter from the president. 
The president said, I've received a couple, received a couple of hundred clippings from those who have been reading your column, those who are concerned about war and peace. I appreciate the concern, said the president. However, I think you sent it to the wrong place. You should have sent it to the Kremlin. Now, Bruce Thielman, Presbyterian pastor, reflecting on that exchange, said this. It's always the other guy's problem, isn't it? When it comes time to fix and repair, it always lands on somebody else's desk. I can understand that. I can understand that both personally, but also in larger terms. Jonathan Glover, writing a moral history of the 20th century, says that in the years between 1900 and 1989, somewhere in the neighborhood of 86 million people died in war. That's an average of about 2,500 a day, about 100 an hour for 90 years straight. And that's not the whole story. Maybe an even bigger part of the story is the fact that in, in the generally same period of time of the 20th century, about 120 million people died at the hands of their own governments. Many of them, about 80 million, between the Soviet Union and China. Horrible. Mind-numbing realities. It underlines the days that some of us might remember when there were many concerns, many fears about the potential for nuclear war. Some can remember those dread feelings in the pit of their stomach during the time of the Cold War. But the truth is, we're seated in a beautiful sanctuary surrounded by loving friends and fellow church members. All of that is a long way from us. We don't have any control over those realities. When we think about such things, what we're concerned about typically are things like our neighbor whose dog won't stop barking and who won't do anything about it all night long. We think about the classmate who is spreading vicious and false rumors about us. Or we think about the ex-spouse who's manipulatively playing mind games with the children or withholding the child support check. We think about situations in our own lives. We don't think about the big picture as much. Which caused me to go to the dictionary, online dictionary, to look up the word enemy. What is the meaning of that word? How does the dictionary define enemies? So it gives a number of different definitions for the word. Here's the first one. An enemy is a person who feels hatred for, fosters harmful designs against, or engages in antagonistic activities toward another. An adversary, an opponent. It had three or four more meanings attached to the military in one form or another. And finally, it ended up with this one. Enemies are persons or nations that are hostile to one another. Enemies. You may remember that when we began this series eight weeks ago, we took up a challenge from the book of Hebrews, from the letter writer to the Hebrews, that challenge that said in chapter 12, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. It's a challenge we've been coming back to time and again throughout this series. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And we can understand that and share that. Somebody comes to us who is guilt-laden 
burdened down by things that they have done in the past, we can say to them, there's grace. We encounter somebody who's swallowed up in shame. We can tell them, grace will cover your shame. We encounter someone who wants to grow in the Christian life, grow toward maturity, and we tell them, grace is sufficient. It will empower you to grow. But what about enemies? About those people, according to the definition, who are antagonistic, who desire our harm. What about grace toward them? Do you suppose that the letter writer to the Hebrews, in scratching those words on that ancient parchment, see to it that no one misses the grace of God? Do you suppose that letter writer included enemies in his thinking? What about it? What do we do with that reality? What does it mean when we come to those foes, those antagonists in our lives? I'd like to point you in the direction of two scenes. Two scenes. One is the scene of a crucifixion. The other is the scene of a stoning. Two scenes. There are many similarities between the scenes. In both cases, there is a man of sterling character who has been persecuted and who has been brought to this moment where he will face his demise. Both of them had been people who had shared a picture of the character of God that was arresting and compelling, was filled with love and grace. Both of them had ended up on the wrong side of the religious authorities, on the wrong side of the civil authorities. Both were now to feel the crush of Rome's heavy boot. No execution happened without the permission of Rome. They were both facing their death. Now, there were some differences. In one case, the person would be crucified. In the other case, the person would be stoned. Both of them were horrible deaths, almost horrible beyond imagination. But as they faced those deaths, there was a difference even in that. Because for as dastardly an act as stoning was, crucifixion arguably was even worse because the crucified person tended to live for days at times. Severe agony in the death. So there were similarities and there were differences in the two scenes. But there was one more similarity. But in order to catch this similarity, we have to actually go to the place, view the scene, listen to the cries and the taunts, the angry words and the prayers. The first is the scene of the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. He has finally gotten to the point where his preaching of the character of God and what God wants to do for all of us has run so afoul of the religious authorities that they have drawn in the civil authorities, and now the time has come. They compel him down the Via Dolorosa, carrying his own cross. The taunts and the jeers and the mockery fill his ears. They finally arrive at that place called simply the skull. Luke tells us the story. He tells it to us with very spare words. Simple, clear, compelling. 
Luke, as he tells what happened, records it this way, Luke 23, beginning in verse 32. Two other criminals were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. If we want to know what to do with those who wish us harm, those who are antagonistic against us, those who might want to do us in, maybe the best place to begin is at Calvary. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. That's the first scene. The second scene takes place sometime later and not too far away. Almost certainly, the second scene included many people from the first scene. Many of those religious leaders, those religious leaders who were so rigid in their approach to God, had such a negative view of God that they simply could not tolerate this kind of preaching. The one who is now the focus of their ire is none other than Stephen. Stephen is one of the first deacons of the church. He has been identified, along with six others, to be a deacon in the early church. The record tells us that Stephen went about performing acts of mercy, acts of charity. He was helping to transform people's lives, their futures. But it also says that Stephen was filled with wisdom, filled with the Holy Spirit, and that he preached the Word. But again, he made enemies, powerful enemies. Enemies who, to begin with, decided that they might try to defeat him with their words, and so they entered into debate, stridently contesting what he preached. But he was too much for them. So finally, if your words don't work, then your fists might. It all comes to a culmination at that moment when he has been drawn before the religious kangaroo court that sits. And as he preaches to them, the Spirit moves upon him, and he begins to speak to them about Jesus, the one who is crucified. As he reaches the climax of his sermon, they can't take it anymore. And covering their ears and screaming like wild banshees so they don't have to hear what he says, they rush upon him and they force him out and compel him outside the city. It's right about there that we join the scene in Acts. Acts, the seventh chapter. Verse 59 says this. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It almost sounds like another way of saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What do we do with our enemies? 
Maybe a very good place to begin is first, Calvary. And then second, that other scene outside the city gate. Our Lord Jesus Christ and Stephen, the first Christian martyr, both prayed essentially the very same prayer about those who wanted to do them harm. Both asked God, please have mercy on them. While you will not find the word grace in either one of those stories, I would challenge you to find a story in Scripture that gives greater evidence of grace than those two. Grace toward your enemies. So what might it look like in our world? After all, in our world, we are not likely to face crucifixion or stoning. We're more concerned about the neighbor, the fellow classmate, the colleague at work, the boss at the office, the spouse who shares our bed. Those are more commonly our concerns. What might it look like, especially in a society, in a culture that has become increasingly strident and angry, increasingly suspicious of persons of faith? What might it look like to show grace to our antagonists? Philip Yancey, in his book, fine book, Vanishing Grace, writes about such things. He tells two stories. The first is the story of Donald Miller. Donald Miller, up in the state of Oregon, at a university there in Oregon, he and some fellow classmates, friends, decided that they were going to put up a booth during a particularly raucous campus festival. This was a campus festival that was famous for its drunkenness and debauchery, wanting nothing to do with people or things of faith. And yet Miller and his friends decided, we're going to put up a booth, and we're going to be clear about our faith. But rather than trying to pull them across an evangelistic line, rather than castigating them for the lifestyle choices they're making, Rather than telling them how they should be living, as we are prone to do, what we're going to do is we're going to speak to those who have been in some way harmed or damaged by the church. We're going to apologize if we've done them wrong. We're going to own our own responsibility. And so that's what they did. I want to read you the words of Philip Yancey and Miller, whom he quotes as to what happened. As Miller confessed to one startled curiosity seeker, here's what he said. Jesus said to feed the poor and to heal the sick. I've never done very much of that. Jesus said to love those who persecute me. I tend to lash out, especially if I feel threatened, you know, if my ego gets threatened. Jesus did not mix his spirituality with his politics. I grew up doing that. It got in the way of the central message of Christ. I know that was wrong, and I know that a lot of people will not listen to the words of Christ because people like me, who know Him, carry our own agendas into the conversation rather than just relaying the message Christ wanted to get across. Over the next several hours, Miller and his friends spoke to scores of fellow students. Many people wanted to hug when we were done, he writes. All of the people who visited the booth were grateful and gracious. I was being changed through the process. I went in with doubts, 
and came out believing. Yancey tells the second story. This one, the story of Craig Detweiler, who took his class of communication students from Biola and from Pepperdine, took them to the Sundance Film Festival, probably the best film festival of its kind, where many filmmakers bring their independent films and try to get exposure and try to get media attention. They went to the festival. It was a place where these communication students could learn and could interact with those in the world who were in this kind of business. Well, it just so happened that year that they were screening a movie, screening a film that had been made who was, that was stridently anti-Christian in nature. It was played before a packed-out house, sold-out audience. Detweiler and his students went. It was a rough experience. The film was a screed against evangelicals, people of faith. It mocked them, derided them, portrayed them as angry and vicious people, even homicidal. As the story unfolded, there were howls of laughter and applause throughout the theater. When it ended, the producer stood up to talk about the film. One of the first questions he was asked was, have you had to face the evangelical Christians yet? And he said, no, but I'm ready for the fight. And there was applause. And then I want to join Yancey for what came next. Without thinking, writes Yancey, Craig Detweiler stood to his feet with a response. I'll let him relate what happened next. Detweiler says, I struggled to compose my words. My voice cracked slightly. I eked out, Jay, the producer, Jay, thank you for this film. As a native of North Carolina, a fellow filmmaker and an evangelical Christian, he pauses and says, I never use the word evangelical. It is so loaded with negative baggage that I usually attempt to distance myself from such associations. But in this instance, it seemed quite right. I was speaking for my community, responding to a particular stance we'd staked out for ourselves. Jay stepped back, ready for the fight. He tensed up, preparing to launch a counterattack. The crowd sensed that things were about to get ugly, so my next words caught them off guard. Jay, I apologize for anything painful ever done to you in the name of God. The entire tenor in the room shifted. Audience members turned around. Did I hear that correctly? They craned their necks. Who said that? Jay fumbled for words, not knowing how to respond. He was ready to be attacked. He was not prepared for an apology. He offered a modest thank you. The audience was literally disarmed. Audience members approached me afterward with hugs. A lesbian couple thanked me. Gay men kissed me. One person said, if that is true, then I might consider giving Christianity another chance. Tears were shed far and wide. All it took was two little words. I apologize. My students leaped at the occasion, talking to the cast and crew, inviting them to join us for further conversation. Our, quote, enemies, unquote, became fast friends joining us for lunch. 
The cast came to our class the next day answering questions for an hour. An actor admitted how scared he was to enter our church meeting place. On stage, he confided, coming into this building, my heart was beating more than at any audition I've ever had. The producer said, this was the most significant moment of our week. A simple apology set off a series of conversations and exchanges about our faith. And how we live it. And then Yancey writes, Experiences such as these convince me that the approach of admitting our errors, besides being most true to a gospel of grace, is also most effective at expressing who we are. Propaganda turns people off. Humbly admitting mistakes disarms. Far from claiming to have it all together, Christians regularly confess that we do not. After all, Jesus said he came for the sick and not the well, for sinners, not for saints. In the words of the old gospel song, he looked beyond my faults and saw my need. True followers of Jesus distinguish themselves primarily by admitting failure when needed and asking for help. Maybe that's something what it looks like. Maybe the willingness to look beyond the outward, to look beyond our own pain, and ask what's the greater good? In what simple way can I reflect the man of Calvary and the first Christian martyr? Do you know that the truth is that that approach even works in the secular world. Wade Boggs, the Hall of Fame third baseman of the Boston Red Sox, didn't particularly enjoy going to Yankee Stadium to play. The story is that when he got to Yankee Stadium to play, he didn't enjoy it, not so much because he was afraid of the Yankees, but because he didn't like one man who sat in a box seat right near third place where Boggs played. Because that man was always heckling him. Hey, Boggs, Boggs, you stink. Boggs, you're no good. Always yelling at him. Believe it or not, athletes have feelings too. And it finally began to eat at him. He didn't like, apparently, going to Yankee Stadium because of this one fan who was always screaming at him. So one day when they were there for the game, he was over on third base and they were warming up, throwing the ball. And it started. Before the game even began, it started. Bugs, you stink. And it just kept going. He finally had enough. He left where he was and walked over near the box, and he looked up and he said, Hey, are you, are you the guy that's always yelling at me? Yeah, that's me. What are you going to do about it? Boggs reached into his pocket, pulled out a new baseball, took a pen he had, and autographed it. And then he tossed it up to the man in the stands. Apparently, that was the last time the man yelled at him. <laughs> he just stopped. In fact, he apparently became, in Yankee Stadium, Boggs' greatest fan. <laughs> A response of grace even in the secular world. So what would happen if those of us who are people of faith 
were to respond that way. To the person who cut us off. To the roommate who borrows our clothes without asking. To the neighbor whose dog won't stop barking. What if we responded with grace? I wonder what the response would be. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews said, See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Stephen saw to it. He saw to it to the degree that even those who were picking up stones to hurl at him, to throw at his head, he saw to it that even they had their chance at grace. And Jesus, the one who hung suspended on Calvary, he saw to it. He saw to it that everyone who helped put him there, the religious leaders with all their anger and rigidity, the Roman soldiers with all their violence and cruelty, and you and me with our rebellion and our sin. Jesus saw to it that we all had a chance at the grace of God. He has extended it to us. I guess, I guess now it's our turn. 